This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. In Genesis and in Revelation, we open and close our gathered books of wisdom with water, with water as a metaphor for life, for ongoing life, for living life. Over the next few Sundays, we're going to be centering our reflections on the story of the Samaritan woman. And I'm going to begin with just telling that story today. Um, As usual, entering into this conversation as feeling challenging this morning, because I've done so much and taken notes, but I don't really, there's so much I want to say. And I can err so often in making things more complex than they need to be. When this story is really so simple. Um, And sometimes it takes visiting a story again and again and again. This is not the first time I've preached on this story. But here we are, November 2017. What is it saying to us now? How is it calling us to faith? We don't know a lot about Samaria. Where is it even taking place? We have this wonderful bench up here because sometimes it's hard to remember that far away in a dusty place called Samaria where we're not even sure where it is is very much like just sitting here with God right now. There's a woman from long ago who had an encounter with Jesus out in the wilderness. She went to the well at a time that she wasn't supposed to go. And we wonder, why was that? Why is she out there near the well? What is her story? We know the story of Jesus in the burning bush, but what is the deal with the Samaritan woman? Samaria is part of the northern kingdoms. So when long, long ago when there were tribes, the Manasseh and uh, Ephraim, they uh, were the tribes of the Samarian area. And it was a rich and wonderful place to live. And families had larger compounds where they raised olive trees and they, uh, they uh, made wine and sold it. And you could live on a larger sort of area with an extended family. Uh, Larger families were actually supported in this area. And the city itself really wasn't all that big. At first, it was no more than long ago when we read the story of Abigail, how her family had a central compound. And this, the compound, belongs to a family called the Shemer family. And David united all the tribes and all of what we understand as larger Israel But that unification didn't last. And the sons of the kings fought against each other and the land was divided. The land became divided and divisive. And it split in kingdoms north 
and south. And the capitals claimed for the northern king and the southern king were different. The southern kingdom, which was Judah, claimed Jerusalem as a holy city full of ritual, as the place where God touched down, as the only true worship place for God. And the people of the north claimed Mount Gerizim as the mountain where God was present, where the temple should go. And the rivalry began. King Omri bought Shemer's land and began to build a city. But it was more of a civic center, unlike the ritual city of Jerusalem, Samaria in its beginning and through most of its life was a place of policy, learning, and civic, uh, and civic administration. And the kings came down. And then the Assyrians entered the picture. The Assyrians did something horrible. They didn't just take in war what didn't belong to them, but they took the people too. The southern kingdom managed to stay whole even though they had to give up money and supplies and women and their sons to quiet the Assyrian kings. Assyria actually moved into Samaria and moved in to the city and the estates. And they plucked people out of it and sent them to the far reaches of their own empire and they brought in from all across their conquered peoples groups to sit and to be there and to live there and to farm there, including people from Arabia and a people from across Mesopotamia. They didn't belong there. They didn't know how to properly worship God. They were misplaced. The blood got mixed. Were they even really Israelites? These are some of the meannesses of conversation that followed that traumatic event. And the people intermarried in Assyria, and this only deepened when the Babylonian exile came and took everybody from everywhere. Even Jerusalem could not stand against the forces of Nebuchadnezzar, and everybody went down. And the temples under the Greeks were turned to the worship of the Greek gods, and the temple on Mount Gerizim, prized by the Sumerians, was t- turned into a temple to Zeus. And a pig was sacrificed in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. King Cyrus came in, the king of Persia, and he was greater than Babylon. Empire rises, empire falls, empire rises, empire falls. Now it's time for Cyrus, and Cyrus allowed the Judeans and the Sumerians to go back into their homes under governors that he controlled. And Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. I'm not even going to revisit that one for now. They vied with the emperor, the governor in Samaria 
Both sought to rebuild their cities. Both sought to create influence in the area, to return to trade, prosperity, affluence, to coexist somehow with this new Persian rulership, this new empire. And so they sparred with each other and didn't like it that each other might be building walls. And Nehemiah and Ezra declared that inner marriage was not allowed. And anybody who was not married to a pure-blood Judean had to leave. They had to send their children and their spouses away. Is it any wonder that later Jesus says, don't divorce? We don't tend to read that with that in mind. But this was a terrible trauma. That didn't happen in Samaria. People were not separated, husband and wife and children, and sent away. But it cast aspersions on the bloodline. It cast aspersions on their ability to ritually be clean enough to encounter God. (sighs) After the Greeks came the Romans. But before Rome came, when the Greeks moved back. John Harakanus, who was a Hasmondian priest from Judea, came into Samaria and destroyed their temple. Totally destroyed it. Undermined the city, dug big holes in the foundation, and allowed the soil to pour away. That's how deep that went. That those, these are the same 12 tribes of Israel. This is the same group from out of the Exodus. This deep tribal hatred just ferments. The Roman emperor comes in and he gives the, after a little while we get um, Caesar Augustus who gives Samaria to Herod, along with everything else. And Herod builds, he's building temples everywhere, builds Caesarea, he builds uh, the temple in Jerusalem, and he's also building a temple in Samaria, 21 meter staircase up to the courtyard. He grills a great wall, 160 acres round. And that's where he lives, and that's where John the Baptist is buried, somewhere there because that's where Herodias demands his life. But regardless of how intertwined it can look from everybody else's point of view and how deeply the argument about which mountain severed ties between these two groups, The trauma that they collectively experienced, somehow they weren't able to bridge it, except for some. Now Jesus was a northerner as well. He was in Galilee, here's Samaria, here's Judah. He too would have been looked down on by the people in Jerusalem, this not being that great. Not to mention that he's a country boy. Not to mention that he's not educated. Not to mention that he's poor, itinerant. 
Does he have a life? Probably not. And most observant Judeans, people who didn't want to become unpure just from walking on Samaritan soil, think about how big that might be, walk, would walk for days around Samaria rather than straight through it. But you could go straight through the hills a little bit there and get right to Galilee, and that's what Jesus does. And he gets to Samaria, and it's noon, and he's thirsty, and there's a well. And a woman. Now, this is not private space. She's not supposed to be talking to him, and he is not supposed to be talking to her. She's supposed to come when all the women come in the morning to get her water, because that becomes private space around that. Women uh, are not foisted into public. That's dishonorable. So they come together, they get water, and they leave. So something has happened. So the division of north and south, division of uh, Jerusalem and Samaria, the division of women here, all these divisions. And Jesus says, give me a drink of water. <laughs> ah! So this doesn't happen. First of all, he's a Judean. And she says, well, what? You know, we're not supposed to share anything. If we share, so I'm, women, Samaritan women were just impure by all the standards of Judean understanding because they could never become ritually clean because they didn't have the correct way of doing it. Right? So she's not a ritually clean person to talk to. She's going to get her cooties on him if they share anything. And right now, they're being socially deviant, even talking to each other. <clears throat> they're not supposed to be in conversation. And worse, he's asked to have table fellowship with her. They're going to share something to drink, because she's there for water also. And it begins this conversation that transforms where they are. So, as they have this conversation, Jesus says, if you knew about this, the water that I have to offer, it would be you who would be asking me for a drink. Isn't that interesting? Turns it on its head. And as they begin talking about what they would or wouldn't share, the space around them gets transformed. They start getting to know each other. From public space it moves into a private conversation. Sitting together on a bench. Who are you and who am I? And they talk about Judeans and what Judeans do. They don't talk to Samaritans. And Jesus asks her a little bit in a roundabout way about her life. And she admits that she doesn't have a husband. And he says, well... I know that, actually, because you, you've had five, and the one you're with isn't your husband right now. We often paint this moment as a moment of her being a prostitute or being a fallen woman. But she was 
fallen from the Judean perspective simply by being a Samaritan. By being a Samaritan woman, she could not be clean. But nothing in the text says that she's a prostitute. In fact, there are feminist theologians who would say that her situation was probably more abusive than philandering. And that had she been alive today, she might have had one of the Me Too hashtags floating through Twitter sphere. The truth is, women didn't have a lot of power there. And as they're talking, Jesus frees her from that shame. Because here, the prophet, a prophet who knows so much, has just stated it matter-of-factly, and it's okay. They're going to move on from that. He invites her, despite all of that, into the sharing of the living water. He gives her insider information about the kingdom, that in the future it will not matter if they worship on Mount Gerizim or not, or whether they worship in Jerusalem because everything is changing. Things have changed. Something new is going on. This is a call story. Just like the burning bush, Jesus calls the Samaritan woman into discipleship. He calls her to move beyond her wounds, her transgressions, her fears, and all the ways that she is told that she cannot be in fellowship with Judeans, all the way that she is told that she cannot speak and be present in her life. The first thing she does is she leaves the water pitcher where it is. That means she's not going home. And she goes into the city, into the public space of the town hall and the city gates, and she proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. She's a preacher. She speaks in public about God. And she calls people to faith. She says, it's all changing. This man knew things about me nobody could know. This man knows about the kingdom that nobody knows. And he's offering us living water that we may live. And they come to see the men of the city here and respond and come and hear Jesus and then invite him to stay with them. When I think about our divisions here, I can't help but think about North and South and how fractured our own country has been, how fractured our church can be, and how we can think of each other as ritually unpure because we're not doing it the right way and how hurtful that is and how it shoves people outside of Christ's love. People think that they're... That People either see it from the outside and go, I don't want to be a part of a group that's fighting like that. Or from within, there's pain about, is it okay for me to say this or think this or believe this? Can I share the good news? And we don't end up sharing the good news. We end up sharing the divisive news. In this call story, we are reminded yet again that Jesus doesn't make those distinctions the way we do. 
that for Jesus, it is about being all in, not about who we're going to push all out. And that's something to remember. Jesus shows up on a bench next to a traveler in the world, somebody just living her life. In the middle of the unexpected comes the call to serve God. I would encourage you to reflect on where those moments have been for you. Those moments take us deeply, deeply into where we want to be, deeply into community, deeply into communion with Christ, deeply into the shared understanding that the kingdom of God is near and present, and that divisiveness is not where God is leading us, but instead, God travels through the towns you would never go in order to invite people into faith. How cool is that? Before we move into communion, I'd like us to take just a minute and reflect on where you have been, where you have stepped, where you could proclaim that good news.